We're going to land in the book of Luke again. As I said last night, Luke is a hoot, and we want to uh, examine a parable or a story or a piece of scripture that gives everybody a lot of heartburn. And uh, uh, I want to open with a story. I uh, I made two correct decisions my whole life. The first decision I made was to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and the second decision was to marry my wife. I made the decision to trust Christ as a Savior with a lady evangelist who had a big pheasant feather in her hat, and instead of pointing at you like most preachers do, she'd just cock that that pheasant feather and point to you, and when that pheasant feather hit on me, I knew it was my time was up. I had to walk the aisle and trust Christ as my personal Savior. It took me a little bit more time to, to trust my wife, though. I thought, thought about it, and ra- as we say in uh, Arkansas, I wrestled with it for uh, six months before I made the decision. Everybody told me to go home to the United States because those United States girls were a lot more beautiful than she was, so uh, I politely ignored that advice. But being married to my wife is, has been fascinating and interesting. Now, you know, uh, someone may have mentioned that I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I don't know whether you have any strong feelings either way about that. But if there's one thing that we are known for as graduates of Dallas is expository preaching. So my wife has been uh, trained to uh, uh, appreciate expository preaching and I was out of a church at one time early on in my career, and uh, I had gotten, I had resigned under adverse conditions, let us put it that way. And I found out a little Cumberland Presbyterian church needed a pastor. So I went over there, and I had no income at that time. I had two children at that time. And I said, surely these people are going to take us out to lunch after I preach. All I saw going down over the hill with the tailpipes. And we were just kind of out of luck. So finally, after three services, nobody made a move. You know, I expected the committee to come and say, well, Brother John, would you be our interim at least? Here's what we'd like you to do for us. Nobody made a move or anything. And Young looked at me. She said, John, I know you're a great expert expository preacher, but she says, I've been watching the congregation for three weeks now, and I don't think they appreciate suppository preaching. (laughs) So whatever you get tonight out of the lesson, just remember it's suppository preaching. Turn with me. Turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of Luke. And we're going to talk about three things. There's three concerns with the book of Luke. I hope I've communicated to you the value and the importance of looking at the context before we plunge into a passage. And Luke has three major items in the context. The first thing, Luke is very, very considered, uh, involved with thinking about, concerned with how Believers use wealth. He's very concerned with how we manage our finances. Uh, He's very concerned with what we do about wealth. He has the parable of the talents, not the talents, the minas, in chapter 19, which is a money parable. 
He has the story of the rich fool who, rather than sharing his excess with the poor, builds bigger barns to store them up for a a rainy day, and then it rains that night, and he's accountable for what he did. He has a great deal of concern with money. That's one of his major themes. So when you and I plunge into a passage of Scripture somewhere in the middle of Luke, we should think about the fact that there might be money issues involved. But there's a second issue that he deals with, and that is, uh, as Brother Tracy said, he's always concerned about where's dinner. Uh, He always has the Lord Jesus Christ either going to a banquet, coming from a banquet, or teaching at a banquet. And there's a very good reason for that, because he sees analogies or a parallel between an earthly banquet and a heavenly banquet or a kingdom banquet. In other words, he sees people taking the higher position, the place closest to the host in the earthly digs. And then he says, now, wait a minute. He says, there's coming a banquet in the kingdom of God, and you better not walk into that banquet and have the master of the banquet sit you lower than you thought you deserved. So there's a an analogy, a parallel going on between uh, what Jesus does in earthly banqueting and the millennial banquet or the marriage banquet or the feast in the kingdom that one of our pastors talked about in Isaiah chapter 25. I think Brother Royce talked about that. So that's the second major concern. So when you and I plunge into a passage of Scripture, we should expect to see something to do with the millennial banquet or a earthly banquet that's a a preview of the kingdom banquet. Jesus said in uh, Luke, uh, later on in Luke, he celebrates what we call the Lord's Supper. It was really the Passover meal with his disciples. And he says, I've often wanted to, to share this with you, but I'm not going to share it again until we share it together in the kingdom. And he says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine I'm not going to drink wine until in the kingdom because I am getting ready to offer a priestly sacrifice and I'm going to be dead, buried, and rose again and I'm going to ascend on high and I'm going to assume the role of your high priest and when a high priest is on duty, he does not indulge in wine. So Jesus said until he comes out of the Holy of Holies on the day of of, uh, intercession ends, and he closes the gate on the doors of the temple in heaven, and he comes down, then it's the day of judgment. Right now, we're in the day of atonement. Jesus is interceding for us. He's atoning for us. He's propitiating for us as our heavenly high priest. So that's the second major theme. And then the third major theme, as I suggested last night, was that I think, I suspect that, uh, that uh, Luke unbeknownst to most people, was a Sadducee. And the Sadducees absolutely hated the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hated the Sadducees. And uh, that was a characteristic of intertestamental Judaism. These religious parties and schools and factions were fighting all the time with one another, even to the point of bloodshed. So I am not surprised when it turns out in Luke's Gospel that he has cycles of anti-pharisaical teaching. 
Jesus confronts the Pharisees over and over and over again and confronts them with the issues that they have, which is mostly involved with adding to the word of God. There's only one time when Jesus enters into the discussion with the Pharisees about the actual word of God, and that's in John chapter 8, when the woman taken in adultery was brought to him. Then they discussed the real law. But all the other discussions of the law were Pharisaic add-ons to the Mosaic law, and Jesus would have none of it. And he pointed out the hypocrisy involved in it. And as the brother said this morning, it was a burden, it was a trouble, it was hard work to carry that yoke. And Jesus said, let me lighten your yoke. Let me give you a two-harness two yoke where I fit on one side and you fit in the other, and I'll carry the load for you. So now let's go together to uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And you will, without too much uh, instruction, will understand Luke chapter 15 as the one with the, uh, the uh, lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son the uh, uh, parable of the so-called prodigal son. But the key to this section of Scripture is found in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. And as we go through chapter 15, we realize that he never says again he spoke this parable. So what we have in Luke chapter 15 is one parable in three parts. We have one parable about how uh, a woman looks at her dowry money and roots around hunting for it. We have a parable of how a man looks about a sheep that he has lost, and then we have a final parable about the father with the two sons, one of which was stayed at home and did the right thing, the other which went to a far country and enslaved himself and got into servitude with a non-Jewish person, and he ended up slopping the hogs. So what I want you to see is that these two groups in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, informs the parables. The Pharisees are the oldest son, the grouchy oldest son in the lost uh, son episode, and the tax collectors and the sinners are the, sinner, the, are the son that went to the far country. So there's a dialogue that goes on between these two groups, and it works itself out in these parables. Then in Luke chapter 16, it gets more interesting because Jesus, in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1, and he also said to his disciples, and we find there the story of the, the uh, steward that uh, seemingly did something dishonest to guarantee his place in uh, a position when the bad times came. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 16, I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that's wealth, that when you fail or when it fails, they may receive you into the everlasting habitations. 
That's an unfortunate translation. It means everlasting tents. It's a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom. So what we have then is we're coming in at the end of this uh, uh, section on stewardship, and we have a warning by Jesus, which will start our presentation proper tonight in chapter 16, verse 13. The warning is against divided loyalty of serving two masters, God and mammon. And a warning to the Pharisees in verses 14 through 18 that their attitude towards money is both a violation of the law of the kingdom and of the law against adultery. Let's look at it. Warning to the Pharisees. This is an interlude. This is, be- this is a section in between the story of the unjust steward and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we're going to talk about in detail tonight. This interlude helps us to understand the following parable and story. I've told you the greater context, the larger context, was the idea of a messianic wedding feast, a banquet in the kingdom. It was a stewardship of wealth, and it was a polemic against the Pharisees. We're going to see those things show up at the end of chapter uh, 16 in the rich fool, uh, rich man and uh, Lazarus. But this interlude, this is almost like organizing the chapter A-B-A. This interlude helps us understand the parable and the story. It's kind of a parenthesis and a contrast between the disciples and the Pharisees. Now, here we are told two things. Number one, we are told in chapter 16, uh, verse 14. Let's see whether that's exactly right. Yes, verse 14. We're told now the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. There's nothing wrong with money. It's a medium of valuation. But Paul says that the love of money is what the problem is because it is a form of idolatry. Mammon cannot satisfy the needs of of you or I because it promises something that it can't deliver. The Pharisees love money. And then secondly... They derided or they turned up their nose at Jesus for his previous teaching about using money wisely. So that is an indicator of physical contempt. They lifted their nose up. My granddaughter does that every so often when she wants to refuse to follow instructions. She'll just kind of stick her nose up and give me a lot of baby talk and talk back to me. Now... Jesus warns them, he says, here he makes a contradiction or a a comparison of justification. He says, I know you want to be justified before men. You want to be looking good in the eyes of people, but it's implicitly compared with justification before God. If you are justified by men and in the presence of men, you almost ipso facto are not justified by God. God knows the heart. Therefore, a new heart in accordance with Jeremiah 31, 33 must be given. The general principle in this passage, verses 14 through 18, is what is highly esteemed before men, i.e. money, is an abomination, which is an unacceptable sacrifice before God. Why? Because it's not mixed with faith. It's trusting in a false god. It is idolatry. Now, verse 16, look at verse 16 here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. 
Verse 16 contrasts the law and the prophets being preached until the ministry of John the Baptist with his proclamation of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this was also the message that Jesus brought. Verse 16 has a translation problem as well. The verb could be translated as either a middle or a passive. It seems obvious that the middle sense is wrong because everyone was not pressing themselves into the kingdom. Indeed, many were rejecting the narrow way. The Pharisees did not bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. They did not say the words of confession of sin. They did not ask John to be baptized. They did not prepare themselves for the coming of the kingdom. The solution then is to take the verb as a passive. The kingdom of God has been preached since John, and everyone is insistently being urged to enter it. Then, to make sure his audience understands that the kingdom message is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. I'm sure someone has explained to you somewhere down the line that a tittle was the little nub that distinguishes between a Hebrew R and a Hebrew D. If you want to make a D in Hebrew, you just make a, uh, two lines this way. But if you want to make an R or a D, you make a little nub at the end. It's the tiniest little piece of uh, lithography that makes the difference. Not one of those will pass away. And here, he gives a warning to his Pharise- the Pharisees. Not one jot or tittle will disappear from the law, but whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why on earth did he drop that in in a discussion with the Pharisees about money? It looks like it's totally unrelated to the context. Most commentators think verse 18 is an illustration of the eternal nature of the law. However, another way of looking at it is that the Pharisees were committing adultery with their love for money. Physical adultery is often parallel with spiritual adultery in the Scripture. This is especially strong in the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 16, verse 18, the term law and prophets is mentioned. But this forms a bracket with the mention of Moses and the prophets in chapter 16, verse 31. This means that the subject under discussion in the so-called parable is determined by the immediate context. Do you hear what I'm saying now? I'm saying in this passage of Scripture, he mentions the law and the prophets, and then he frames it with a statement about Moses and the prophets. And that means everything inside the frame, and I just lost my hearing aid, honey. Can you come and pick it up? I probably don't need to hear it to preach. Thank you. These things are great, but sometimes it can be very troublesome. Now, what I was saying was that everything inside the frame is dealing with the same subject. So if you want to get heaven and hell out of the parable of the rich uh, man and Lazarus, you're going to have some real problems because we've already introduced, we've already framed it talking about the issue of wealth and spiritual adultery. So let's continue with what we're talking about here. Parable of the rich man and Lazarus, or Lazarus and the rich man. This is a most difficult teaching 
because of traditional understanding that it teaches immediate punishment in hell after physical death and immediate presence in heaven prior to having a resurrected body. That's the issue. This interpretation overlooks the flow of the argument of the book. Jesus is in his third cycle of confrontation with the Pharisees. The first cycle was Luke 5, 17 through 6, 19. The second cycle was Luke 11, 14 through 54. The third cycle starts in 14, verse 1, to the present passage. This assumes that we understand that the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son represents the scribes and the Pharisees, and the junior son, the prodigal son, represents the uh, tax collectors and the sinners. This interpretation overlooks the immediate context about love of money and the eternal nature of the law. Luke is more interested in the use of wealth than any other gospel writer. Luke also has a very negative approach to the Pharisees. Starting in 14.1 and earlier, Luke represents the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God under the figure of a banquet. Now, let's look at some problems in this passage. I hope you can read that. The first problem is that Jesus never accuses the rich man of any sin. Did you notice that? Secondly, Jesus never proclaims Lazarus to be a righteous man. Now, if you want to be very literal and down to earth, you'd, if you're consistent in understanding this parable, you would say, well, this teaches that rich men go to hell and poor men go to heaven. But we know that's not true. We know that's not true because you go to heaven or you go to, into the kingdom based on grace, uh, if this is heaven and hell, then the righteous can see the unrighteous suffering. Isn't that an interesting prospect? If this is heaven and hell, then how could a drop of water in any way, in any way cure suffering? And last but not least, why did the rich man appeal to Abraham and not to God to send someone back from the dead? Isn't that God's job, to send people back from the dead, not Abraham's? Notice the parabolic formula. Someone asked me, do I think it was a parable? Well, I think it was a parable. The reason is because Luke, when he's giving us a figurative meaning, usually introduces to it, just like he did this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, a certain rich man, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. First of all, let's do the evidence. Let's uh, gather the facts. Let's be the CIA. CSI of uh, spiritual warfare here. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. The Erdman's Bible Dictionary says the war wearing of purple was associated particularly with royalty. In addition, the New Bible Dictionary tells us the use of linen in Old Testament times was prescribed for priests. The coat, the turban, and the girdle must be of fine linen. So we are on safe ground thinking that the rich man represents a royal priestly group. Are we not? Exodus 19.6, it says, And you shall be to me, speaking to the nation of Israel, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These words you shall speak to the children of Israel. The clothing of the rich man identifies him symbolically with the people of Israel. That's why he's not named. He's a corporate figure. He's a corporate symbol. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. 
This refers to both the physical and the spiritual blessings of having most favored nation status with God. Now, the second character on the scene. And a lot of people have trouble with this because he's named. And the rule seems to say, the hermeneutic that we follow seems to say, well, whenever somebody is named, then it's not a parable, it's something else. But let's see why he was named. We first encounter Lazarus. He is a beggar. This is an apt description of Gentiles who laid at the gate of Judah. The Jewish people had a term called the proselyte at the gate. He is consoled in his misery by dogs. A dog was a Jewish term for Gentiles. Notice that Yeshua even used that term with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. He has sores rendering him unclean in accordance with Leviticus 15, 1 through 15. He longed to be fed crumbs from the Jewish table, which we could understand as the benefits of being physical seed of Abraham. Notice that the Gentile woman uses the same terms when talking about the deliverance of her daughter. Notice that the crumbs that were gathered up in Matthew chapter 14, verse 20. So here is a man, a beggar, in sad circumstances. He is locked out, he's at the gate, and he's just getting bits and pieces of what the man, the rich man at the table who was feasting sumptuously... How was he feasting sumptuously? He had the word of God. He had all the things that Romans 10 talks about, uh, the, the election, he had the priesthood, he had the temple service, he had all those things, and he had excluded this poor man. The name of the beggar is given, Lazarus, Eliezer, the one whom God helps, literally translated. Now, this immediately brings to mind, and I think this is what the key to the parable is, Eliezer of Damascus, a Gentile who was the heir of Abraham before Isaac was born, Genesis 15, verse 2. Abraham goes out to rescue his sorry nephew from the kings, and the king of Sodom says, Oh, Abraham, you did a good job. Let's split the, the booty. Let's split split the spoils. Abraham says, I have raised my hand in an oath to God most high that I will not be enriched by you, that I will only be enriched by the God that I serve. And Abraham refuses to be enriched by the king of Sodom. And then God appears to him and says, Abraham, or Abram at that time, Do not fear. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham says, how? How can my reward be great? Because Eliezer of Damascus, a Gentile, is my heir. There is the first place in Scripture where heirship and reward are tied together. And then God comes and says, no, he's not going to be your heir. I'm going to send him to find a bride for Isaac so that he can carry on the seed of promise. And by the way, uh, sorry, Eliezer, you're going to be disinherited. 
Even though he was faithful to Abraham, he, being a Gentile, was disinherited as soon as the child of promise, Isaac, was born. He and all the Gentiles he represented were beggars at the gate of Israel. To get to God, to get to the blessings of Abraham, you had to go through the nation of Israel. You had to become a proselyte at the time that Jesus spoke these words. Now, Let's continue. First, Lazarus dies and is taken by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Abraham is a problem. It could either mean a section of Hades where the righteous dead were kept, although the idea comes from Talmudic teaching, not the Bible, or it could be a reference to the Messianic banquet. We have already heard about the fact that Gentiles will come from the east and the west and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Starting in Luke 14, we have a number of illustrations of the kingdom under the figure of a messianic feast or banquet. So the bosom of Abraham could still be connected to Abraham. That is to say, to the resurrected body of Abraham. So, if you are in the bosom of Abraham, you're right next to him in the table. Because unlike the Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't that way. They used a Roman form of seating at the table where everyone laid down on a sofa and put their left elbow on the table and reached for the food with the right. So the person next to you would be basically on your bosom. So in my understanding, this is what is being promised. He's not uh, promised a heavenly home as a disembodied spirit. He's promised a kingdom promise. He's promised... He has a seat reserved at the table for Abraham. Verse 22 says, The angels carried Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham. It's hard to see how this language can be used if there's a disembodied spirit of a man being transported to heaven. However, we do have an example of the angelic transportation of real living people in the Bible. Matthew 24, verse 15 says, He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Whenever you have the great sound of a trumpet, it is a code name for the Day of Atonement in Jewish literature. And they will gather together his chosen ones from the four winds. That's what Royce was talking about, the four directions, the four cardinal directions from one end of the sky to the other. By the way... Let me do a side trail here, a sidebar. In the tabernacle, the first thing we saw when we came in the main gate, the one gate, there's only one gate, there's only one entrance to the, the tabernacle. The first thing that they, you saw was the brazen altar. And the brazen altar, according to the scripture, had four corners or four horns to it. It's pointed in the four cardinal directions. And it was three cubits high. So we have four directions for the four directions or cardinal directions of the earth. And we have three cubits high for the three heavens. And then we have the totality of creation. So the sacrifice lamb that was strapped to the four horns of the altar was offering a world sacrifice. Now we know that the lamb could not do that. But the lamb that was slain 2,000 years later could. And so the picture 
that is set before us with the four and the three, the completion number seven is a picture of a world sacrifice, and God uses that imagery many times in the scripture to picture what's going on. Angelic transportation. This refers to the second coming of Christ and the gathering of resurrected saints to Jerusalem. Often angels are used as transportation devices for believers. Notice even the Lord uses cherubim as transportation. Psalm 18 verse 10, he rode on a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. So we might even want to infer that the white horses that believers ride in Revelation are really angels. The angels don't have to take any particular form. They're changeable. They can change into their shapeshifters. They can change into anything that they want to. Here we go. Hades, of course, is a problem. We have been traditionally taught that Hades equals hell. However, this is not the case. The root meaning is unseen. So a person who is buried is literally unseen. Mostly, if not all of the time, it translates the Hebrew word sheol, which means the grave. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology states that Hades comes from Idene to see with a negative prefix A, and so would mean the invisible. In the Septuagint, Hades occurs more than 100 times in the majority of instances to translate the Hebrew Sheol, the underworld which receives all the dead. It is the land of darkness. And notice in Revelation chapter 22, which we looked at today, Hades is eventually destroyed. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, notice in this verse that the rich man identifies Abraham as his father, but why wouldn't he ask God for mercy rather than Abraham? John 8, 39, Abraham is our father. Therefore, he is a physical son of Abraham. This also alerts us to the audience being Pharisees, since they were always appealing to Abraham and not to God. John 8, 53, are you greater than our, our father Abraham who is dead? See, the Pharisees didn't care about God. They cared about their descendant from Abraham. And that's where they stumbled and that's where they got tripped up. Next question in this passage is, how come there's only one flame? I'm being tormented in this flame. It's singular, not plural. An appropriate translation, if we understand the story geographically, would be in this brightness. The word rendered torment here is a form of the Greek word oduno, which literally means grief for pain or suffering. Predominantly, it conveys the sense of mental anguish, not physical pain. What happens in verse 26? The roles are reversed. Notice this is based on the strict law of retribution that we quote proverbially nowadays, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You had it good during your life, now you're having it bad. You had it bad during your life, now you're having it good. It's a reversal of destiny based on ethical behavior. One more thing before we close it. There's a great gulf where no one can can pass. The verb pass here means to pass over a body of water. In the geography of Israel, it can only mean the Jordan River Valley, the border between the promised land and the Gentile nations. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah were in this valley. The Dead Sea is in this valley. So get the picture. 
Lazarus is with Abraham in the city. The rich man is outside of the land of Israel across the Jordan River. The last nail in the coffin, there's only one man in the scripture that has five brothers. Reuben was a brother, Simeon was a brother, Levi was a brother, Issachar was a brother, Zebulun was a brother. The rich man is Judah. Notice he is a corporate symbol representing Judaism at the time of Jesus. The story has no individualistic meaning. So what was Jesus saying? Remember, he started out warning the Pharisees. The Pharisees turned up their noses at him because of his teaching that riches are to be used and given away so that you can receive them back in the future. They all loved money. They didn't love God. And Jesus turns the tables on them. They stick up their nose at him, and he gives this parable to warn them about their future reversal of destiny. That the people who thought they were so good, so adequate, so in tune with God, would be left outside the kingdom, and the poor, the meek, the lowly, and everyone who had the character qualities that were needed would enter the kingdom and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Messianic banquet. What's going on in this parable? The request, send someone from the dead. The answer, no. This was forbidden by the law, Deuteronomy 18, verse 11. The charge, Judah is not listening to Moses and the prophets. Therefore, they will also reject Jesus after he rises from the dead. The story turns out to be teaching that Gentiles will be grafted into the Abrahamic blessing and those to whom it belongs will be cast outside of the kingdom. This parable or story has been misunderstood for a long time by many ministers assuming that one goes to heaven or hell immediately after death. This parable or story does not prove that. A careful study shows that the story was directed against the Pharisaic opposition to the earthly ministry of Jesus, just like Brother Al said the other night. Everything is in the scripture is for us, but not everything is to us. The lesson, the Pharisees were in danger of being set aside temporarily and the Gentiles would enjoy the benefits of being adopted sons of Abraham by faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've covered a lot of heavy material tonight. I pray that we would open our mind to thinking, compare the facts with facts, compare scripture with scripture, and thus receive the blessings of Abraham that are promised to us. We want to be in that kingdom. We want to be at the table. We want to take the lower place now so we can take the higher place then. We want to hear you say, come up higher. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.